You're welcome to episode 29 of Folklore Fragments, the podcast from the National Folklore Collection, University College Dublin. Now, the National Folklore Collection is the successor body to the Irish Folklore Commission, that organisation which was tasked from the 1930s onwards of documenting the unwritten customs, beliefs and narratives of the Irish people, those disiect membra, as James Hamilton de Largy described them, of a rich heritage which it was feared was in danger of dying out and disappearing forever unless swift action was taken to gather up the fragments that remain lest they perish. Delargy and those with whom he worked endeavoured to secure for future generations the sources of inspiration and pride which, he, which had, as he wrote, for so long languished in the lumber room of history, those tales, traditions and songs of Ireland he understood as representing the state papers of a forgotten and neglected people. I realised that the old house was on fire, you know. It was about time some of the furniture was taken out before the whole thing went up. In other words, the civilization which had lasted here, Gaelic civilization, which had lasted here for so many centuries, that now it was disintegrating. Uh, so that I suppose the desire to save, the urge to save, a burning urge to save. And I have done something in that regard, and I feel glad. But I feel sorry too, because I realize how little I have done and how little we in the Irish folklore have done compared to what there was to be done. The work of the Irish Folklore Commission then can be seen in ways to attempt to record the voices and ideals of the ordinary people of Ireland, to represent those communities whose voice was not heard among the formal archival records of the state. But there are silences in every archive and the Irish Folklore Commission was no different, having its own particular biases and tendencies. Among these, for example, was an initial focus on the customs of rural people over those in towns and urban areas. And another, and one which is the subject of today's discussion, was the absence of material collected from Ireland's Protestant community. And thankfully, this has been recently addressed by Dr Deirdre Nuttall, who is here with me today to discuss her new book, Different and the Same, A Folk History of the Protestants of Independent Ireland. So, Fodderstaff, welcome, Deirdre. Thanks, Johnny. So the book aims to partially address the stories of Protestants, especially non-elite Protestants, and to provide insight into the richness and counter-narratives embedded in Protestant stories. And so to this end, a project was initiated to document folk history of the Protestants of Independent Ireland, and as such, as part of that project, 98 interviews and 76 questionnaire responses from individuals all over Ireland were collected by Deirdre and by the NFC, by the National Folklore Collection, between 2013 and 2017. And many of their stories encompass their own parents' memories and therefore collectively form a folk history over the period uh, from the start of the 20th century to recent times. Deirdre grew up on the outskirts of New Ross, County Wexford. She studied folklore and archaeology at UCD and took a master's degree in social anthropology at the University of Durham and then returned to UCD to complete her PhD in folklore and ethnology, which explored migratory legends of the supernatural in the southeast of Ireland and Newfoundland. So, Deirdre, what is a Protestant? Is it a religious term or, or, or a cultural term? Well, I would argue that in Ireland it's mostly a, a cultural term and that refers to kind of a, a subgroup of, of Irish people. And obviously faith is part of that. They belong to the Protestant denominations or they're descended from people who belong to the Protestant denominations. Yep. But the, the primary difference is, is it's kind of they have a slightly different shared history and kind of a slightly different shared set of stories. So I would say in the Irish context, it's really a, a, cultural, a cultural group, group. rather than strictly religious per se it's funny like even the fact that you know in a way you can relieve religion and to 
some extent, as you're right, you can leave a religion but still be seen as Protestant. It reminds me of the, the joke, are you Catholic or a Protestant? Like, I'm an atheist. <laughs> yeah, well, are you Catholic atheist or are you Protestant atheist? That you kind of, there's no escape from these um, these identities or group identities. You mentioned in the introduction that there was a sense of, of decline and a kind of that Protestants in Ireland uh, represented a kind of a diminished or diminishing group. You're at the throughout much of the 20th century, while wealthy Protestants remained influential, the Protestant community dim- diminished. And you note that the departure of security forces and the disestablishment of British garrisons and other elements of the admin- administration, kind of as they went with it, the relative yeah. fertility of the group fell below replacement level. And then factoring in immigration, which was at a higher rate than among the Catholic population, you know, churches were abandoned, there was a certain a narrowing of outlook. So there was a kind of I suppose a sense that the Protestant community in Ireland fell back on the defensive at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, obviously throughout most of the colonial period, um, there were advantages to being a Protestant, particularly to being a member of the Church of Ireland, much less so if you were, you know, Presbyterian or some one of the smaller space groups. Um, and obviously that privilege wasn't evenly distributed, but there certainly would have been a sense of safety, probably, of having the same faith as the, you know, the colonial government. Mm. Um, and then, you know, with independence, there's an inevitable backlash. It happens everywhere yeah. um, where a new nation is finding its feet. So I think people really did go on the defensive. There was also kind of the um, third of kind of Catholic triumphalism, mm. which made people feel quite nervous as well. And, and, and really the communities became quite inward looking. Um, the 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 new Irish government treated wealthy Protestants really very well. They didn't want big business families to leave the country mm. and take all their money with them. They were big employers. Those people like, you know, the Guinness family, the Jacob's Biscuit Factory, these were people who employed a lot of people and, and were often seen as quite good employers. So the you know kind of elite Business families were treated extremely well by the new state. So you had the, the working class Protestants, lower middle class, smaller farmers, often really felt like they'd been very much left behind by everyone in in the wake of of Irish independence. Yeah, uh, one one aspect at the start of the book that I thought was really interesting that I thought would be worth looking at at the start would be maybe to examine some of the ideas around the folk and folklore collecting, particularly in the kind of late nineteenth century. Um, and how that impacted or kind of, I suppose, what, what, what the influence or impact on was on the Protestant community. Like, you note, you know, a lot of the, the, um, the, the that in, in the 19th century, the folk were kind of conceived of as maybe Catholic, rural, illiterate, poor, um, and that there was a higher class or elite group who were educated, urban, and they don't correspond with that designation. And so, yeah. and yet a lot of the early scholars of folklore and collectors of folklore either the literary figures like Lady Speranza, Speranza Wilde, or Yeats, or Char- Charlotte Brooke, or Charles Valency, that these were of an Anglo-Irish Protestant background themselves. Um, yeah, well, people like Speranza Wilde and Yeats and other people in their group really, you know, they, they felt very Irish, they considered themselves Irish, they were, they were very aware of the privilege they had. And of course, um, Speranza's husband um, was a doctor, and, 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 and also he was a very humanitarian doctor, so I think these people really were very aware of their privilege and were also keenly aware of the importance of Irish folklore and how much there was there. And they, I think, felt that this was a way they could give back to their country and they wanted to collect this material, they wanted to work with this material and make it available to a bigger audience. Mm. 
but at the same time didn't feel that it belonged to them the same way it belonged to um kind of people they 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 were were collecting from either directly or indirectly yeah yeah you're right here for for scholars such as yates and wilde collecting publishing and treasuring oral lore of ordinary people could be a way of respecting them but also wishing to keep them in their place and perhaps it was a useful way to express feelings about protestants and irishness without needing to discuss more challenging yeah. topics such as the plantation era and the strife that followed the reformation yeah yeah. So I thought that was really, there's just an interesting kind of um, stress or something in, in that way. And then you go on to note about the establishment of like the Folklore of Ireland Society in 1927, which Douglas Hyde, who again of an Anglo-Irish background, um, was a founder member and also who established the, the, the Irish Folklore Commission with Delargy, he was kind of Delargy's mentor, that they were influenced by Romantic nationalism and the Gaelic revival and that saw that the Irish, r- rural Irish culture kind of represented this ancient pure past basically and to that end I suppose in the early 20th century with the commission um, the the schools collection was kind of one folklore collecting initiative a fantastic initiative really that used school children yeah. senior pupils all over Ireland to collect folklore from their parents and grandparents but there was a there was a piece that you you write um, which I was just astonished by I mean I knew that there was there was a, a rural bias in, in the commission at that time and so urban areas are largely absent they're conspicuous in their absence from the schools collection um, but you note the case of, of a nine-year-old Samuel, one of the informants for the project. Yeah. That was just amazing. I, I'll read this piece from the book. It says, uh, Samuel, nine years old at the time of the school's collection, remembers how the material was collected in the Catholic primary school that he attended. When the teacher instructed the children to gather information from their parents and grandparents and the older people in the area for the folklore commission, they were all given special books to write the material in. He, however, was told that as a Protestant he was exempt from his ho- this homework. He was the only child who was not asked to gather folklore. Looking back, he says, the fact that the schoolmaster didn't think I should get something from his family strikes me now. And so in retrospect, he feels that this was because there was little interest in how Protestants lived in the 1930s. This idea that these are not the folk, as it were. This is not uh, um, yeah. p- part and parcel of what it means to be Irish. I, I, I found that, I was astonished by, by just by that... Uh, yeah, of... well, I was amazed and delighted to meet him at all because obviously there aren't that many people left who took part. And he's, he has actually passed away subsequently. But when I met him, I was kind of explaining why I was doing it. No, I remember that. He had a wonderful memory. And um, and he remembers being told. And I have to stress that he had, while some Protestants who went to Catholic schools at that time that don't have very happy memories of their education. He had very positive memories of his education. He was very happy in the Catholic school. There was no bullying. There was nothing unpleasant happened. You know, he he was very fond of his teacher. So this wasn't done in a nasty way. And um, and at the time, he didn't experience it as, as an aggression at all. It was only subsequently he thought, why weren't they interested in us? Why didn't they? But um, I should stress that this view that Protestants didn't have folklore was not only held by people like Samuel's teacher. It was also held by the Protestants themselves. Um, because it had become so ingrained, this idea that folklore belongs to Catholics, especially poor Catholics, that it completely, I mean, it's actually uh, something that will probably come up later on, is that I think this has actually been a great preserver of folklore among the Protestant community, because the idea that if a Protestant believes something, it's therefore definitely not folklore, is really widely held. Yeah. So you'll often have people saying... Um, give that tell you a, a, a legend in beautiful detail and then they'll say well I know it's true because you know my granddad was Protestant and therefore he was an accurate you know teller of this story yeah so, yeah yeah he wasn't um, superstitious yeah. yeah so but yeah I was so happy to meet Samuel and 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 hear about this and I can you just have to wonder then did this happen a lot um did 
the, and did the Protestant school teachers in the schools involved with school selection were they maybe less interested in it because they felt it was yeah. less relevant to yeah. them? And certainly, I haven't done a detailed exploration between the Catholic and Protestant schools in the in the collection, but. From what I've seen, the Protestant ones actually do look less interesting and they do seem slightly more half-hearted and that people were actually made slightly less interested in the project. Yeah, it is interesting. It's my impression. Yeah, and it is... Sorry, no, go on. Well, it's so just going to be an interesting project for someone to do at some point. Definitely, yeah. And it is important to note as well, like you say, that it's not... It's not an explicit kind of act of, of like you said, aggression or something on the part of this teacher, but there, there are just blind spots no, 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 and, and different yeah. perspectives that only become... They they kind of they they they're they're conspicuous in their absence as time passes. It's like in the same way that the urban folklore project in the set it was seen. Wait a minute, you know we haven't. Yeah. I mean you know like the the, the I love <laughs> Delargy's kind of wild uh, quote in in, in the foreword to the handbook where he talks about the shoddy and imported culture of the towns <laughs> that's pushing back the homespun courtesies and all that sort of stuff. You know that's all this kind of. Um, I suppose fire and brimstone in a way kind of speak about yeah. the, the national importance of this scheme and so on and yet I suppose like you say there are more complex feelings around identity and around the past for many Protestants in, in independent Ireland in particular like the collective memories of the majority were always encouraged to develop in a certain direction that's always going to be the case and it's only maybe when you stand in opposition to those kind of uh, ideas or trajectories that you realise the force and strength of those currents that you're now contrary to in a way yeah. Um. There's a, there's a section on on um that you note note about um that the dominant narrative on the backbone of national identity kind of you, you write that often the Protestants don't fit neatly into the country's dominant narrative of a Catholic people long oppressed by a Protestant upper class who through heroic struggle achieved independence and the triumph of their faith, and the story of a people coming out of bondage that presents Irish Irish history as a coherent ordering of events along a strict narrative line serving as an intellectual and emotional backbone of national identity. So, I suppose you know you say as well like in your in concluding introduction that. For many people, being Irish is intricately bound up with the Catholic Church, or nowadays in with having rejected the Catholic Church. You know that that's kind yeah. of part and parcel of, of for many of us who, who we are in a way, and that I suppose Protestantism, in, in a sense, falls outside of that of that narrative. Yeah, and also I think there's because people like to think of stories as in terms of villains and heroes, and, and I think when we all learned history in primary school, you know, we were taught about the landlords during the famine and. And blah blah blah, and the fact that the the, the Protestants have always been socio-economically diverse mm. is often certainly at the level of popular discussions of history completely overlooked. Mm. That um, you know, Protestants could be small farmers, Protestants could live in tenements. Protestants weren't necessarily you know benefiting at all from sharing the fate of the the the, the, the infamous landlords. Yeah, yeah, is is not something that was always filtered down to general knowledge. Mm. Um, and that certainly still impacts on the way they are seen. To this day, I would say very yeah. much. Yeah, there's there's a, a chapter, the first opening chapter on stories of origin. I thought was really interesting, um, and particularly around these ideas of kind of say establishing the authenticity of your own claim to Irishness and so on. These collective stories, I thought it was fantastic. The the the, the early Protestant interest in Saint Patrick and claiming him yeah. as the as as St. Patrick's being the first Protestant and founding the Church of Ireland. Can you explain a bit about that or what, what was the story there? Well, this is actually a really, it's quite an old idea. It started back in the 1700s with Bishop Usher. And, um, so basically, the Church of Ireland and also the Presbyterian Church um, laid claim to the idea of being the original Celtic Church of Ireland. Now, it makes no sense, really, because obviously the Church of Ireland was 
an Anglican church and, and therefore it was established by Henry VIII. So, you know, mm. it's really stressing it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the idea was that um, that Patrick established true Christianity in Ireland and that there are elements of truth insofar as Patrick, obviously, but the Celtic, the Celtic church in Ireland developed quite independently from the centre of the power of the Vatican for a long time. Mm. So they looked at that and they said, well, that, that was the true Christianity and then in their reinterpretation of events, the Reformation or the impact of the Reformation in Ireland was the restoration of the true Celtic Church. Mm. And they kind of recast the Catholic Church as an, as the interloper and saying, oh, well, it was, it was brought in by the, by the Normans. That's fantastic, um, yeah. Well, it's pure folklore, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, but it's, it again, it's, just, it's, it's, it it's, it's these questions yeah. of kind of claims to identity and authenticity and, and again, just that, yeah. that question of communal memory and how do we stake our claim as a people in this place, the in-group, out-group kind of dynamic is... It's, yeah, it's, 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 it also just shows how, how powerful these mythological figures are. Now, I know Patrick you know, was a real person, but he's also a mythological figure at the same time. And just how potent these symbols are to people that, that everyone wants a bit of it and everyone wants you know, to stake a claim to these great heroes of our, of our history. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's um, you you note as well. Like one thing I thought was really really striking, where you write, um, many ordinary Protestants have felt that 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 they have been invited to assume a, a, a collective sense of shame for awful awful events in the distant past, such as the massacre mm. by Oliver Cromwell and Drogheda in 1649, when the streets are said to have run red with blood, or the clearance of Catholics from their land to be replaced with planters. They have felt that they are expected to apologise for terrible things that some of their ancestors might have done long ago. In fact, many of them report having been explicitly told that they should be ashamed of what we are because they are descended from the anti-heroes of Ireland's grand narrative. I was struck just by the, the deeply, I suppose, debilitating nature of that sort of discourse, these narratives of guilt, of shame, of self-abnegation. They all relate to questions of cultural affirmation, questions of group identity, questions of belonging, questions of history. They're, they're the kind of the enemies that the people have to face within their own minds individually and as a group. And so with that in mind, like how did Protestant communities in Ireland tell stories of their own origin to themselves, particularly around historical details is about how they came to be in Ireland. How did they, how did they navigate those origin stories? Well, a lot of people, I mean, when you start talking to them about their ancestors, will be very, very quick to say, oh, we came you know, shortly after Cromwell and therefore we're nothing to do with him or... I mean, some people are much more explicit as well in, in discussing how they choose some stories to tell over others. So mm. I think I quoted one man who said, I talk about this, my Quaker ancestors and I leave out the rest. I mean, things also changed because if you look at the late 19th century and kind of popular writing among Irish Protestants, they were still feeling often quite proud about... I mean, the narrative then was that, that um, the yeomen had um, been good for Ireland, that they had introduced all this new blood and that they had introduced new ideas... And, and that people were proud of claiming descent, whether accurately or not, from mm. them. But then with independence artists, people were like, oh, Seth, you know, we've got to, this is no longer, okay, we can't be proud of these ancestors. Now we've got to find some other ancestors to be proud of. Mm. So when people would go to quite elaborate lengths, I mean, not entirely consciously, but, you know, just picking, and we all have hundreds and thousands of ancestors. So for all of us deciding which ones we're going to discuss, mm. as our family history is, and it is an aspect of choice in us, clearly. So, um, so people would say, oh, well, we are descended from the great Gaelic tribe of the O'Briens, um, and or we are descended from um, Protestant nationalists, or we are descended from this, or we are descended from that. 
and, and even stories that may well have been true or had big elements of truth, it's just that they would choose those stories in preference to other ones that might also have been true. I mean, it is actually an undeniable fact that many of the colleges in Ireland today are descended from people who benefited in various ways from the plantation era. Mm. That's just a very uncomfortable truth that people kind of have to try and navigate through the stories they tell about their ancestors. It's it's interesting, that question, kind of, you know, in every remembering there's a forgetting as well and it goes yeah. back to the start of the archive and the kind of even Delargy's initial impulse to to collect and to highlight the state papers of a forgotten people and then setting up the folklore you know the tradition archive and then within that there are gaps and silences and it just they're, they're always they're always there yeah but you notice or you, you note as well that um you know some of the informants were, were mentioning a certain sense of shame of their of their ancestors and yeah you write and that, something would be quite explicit about it I, i'm ashamed of who i am i'm ashamed of being uh, descended from protestants yeah it's all, all, I, I, I try not to tell people yeah yeah i can't imagine it's just a deeply debilitating or as a negative such a negative uh, impact on people's self-identity that sort of discourse or, or, or that kind of trajectory or whatever but you notice that their humble ancestors are easy to discuss you know the huguenots and palatines and so on yeah um, yeah and you note then that some individuals say oh my ancestor came over to ireland as an orphan with their sister or um oh my ancestor came over to build a school or they were stonemasons or farmers so that people were very very aware of their own family histories and how to navigate them privately and publicly i suppose yeah, yeah. Um, and, and which stories you might discuss only at home and which you might tell your friends. Yeah, what do you ventilate and, and when? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, I suppose to move then towards the question of stories of the past, I thought it was really interesting because there are so many approaches to, to the kind of the grand historical events of Irish history. And in a way, I suppose they have to be, they have to be navigated in, in their own kind of, I suppose, deft or careful way. You write here, all peoples tell stories about the past that appear to make sense of the present and provide a narrative that flows logically from the beginning to the current status quo or the end. The past becomes a screen onto which different groups can interpret their own understanding. It is important to record these stories from every element of a population, otherwise we lose one or more of our windows into the past and an important factor in understanding the present. Informal histories are subjective, but formal histories can be too, which I thought was a great observation. So... I suppose, how did Protestants in Ireland tell, again, tell themselves stories about important historical periods like 1798, say? Um, well, they kind of, depending on you know where they're from and what emphasis they want to give, I mean, they would often stress um, if they had a nationalist ancestor that would, in independent art, have been the thing to, to discuss. Or they would kind of try to tone things down. Or they would try to sometimes try to point out that that things could not always be in black, as black and white as they're often thought to be. So I think one of the examples I discussed in there was um, a lady who um, had been told at school that that the, the famine was done to the Catholics by the Protestants. And she had heard stories at home from like her grandparents or whatever that, that the Protestant community locally had been devastated in the famine. So it was in an area where there was a big mm. kind of cohort of, of Protestants at a very small farm. Mm. And the, the stories that they had heard, they had been, you know, shown in abandoned cottages, long abandoned cottages, obviously, and told, you know, that that's where people used to live. They all died in the famine, or they all emigrated. So she had told her teacher, "Oh, in my village, um, lots of people died, or lots of people emigrated." And he said, "Nonsense. Mm. Um, the, the famine was done to the Catholics by the Protestants. That's that's not true." Mm. Um, so she she was quite, you know, felt quite quite chastened. And it wasn't until many years later she was in the local historical society lecture and a historian from Dublin said 
told her, yes, you know, actually the famine affected poor people didn't really care, um, you know, yeah. what kind of cultural identity those people had. Mm. And um, so that was kind of the kind of complexity of, uh, of um, you know, just looking at history and how it, it can be much more nuanced than people often think. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in particular, thinking about the famine, like as a, a traumatic event in the national psyche, psyche, but it speaks to the nature of, communal memory as a way of relating to a past that we didn't experience but again like you know it's one that we navigate today and and by which we are oriented you're right in the book as well like it suited catholics and protestants alike to characterize the famine as a catholic problem for catholics it was proof that the british state did not care about them britain had given extraordinary powers to absentee landlords and failed to deliver effective disaster relief for protestants it seemed to show the superiority of their society and its work ethic and even suggested that god was casting judgment on an indolent uh, and, and, and unself-reliant people um, yeah. but, but then you note as well how some Protestants felt that they were being pilloried unfairly in these narratives and around you know the big house narratives in particular where and uh, the kind of th- those with land and, and that big house demographic as it were and you write of, of Esther who, who Esther who, does, who, who writes or who, who, who says um, uh, Bord Falta, which is the Irish Tourism Authority, in their campaign of the ancient East, appeared to suggest that all big houses caused hardship to their tenants and employees or were absentee landlords. This was not so. My great-grandmother contracted typhoid as a result of manning soup kitchens. She never properly recovered and died early as a result. It has been said that the Protestants forced the starving Catholics to change their religion. I do not have any evidence of this. So, yeah, I suppose there's a kind of... Um, yeah, like you say, this the, these narratives that are inherited and, and, and that are navigated to this day but where, where there are clear black and white heroes and anti-heroes but of course when you when you when you begin to unpick it and take it apart the history is actually much more nuanced and unclear yeah i mean the um it's, it's actually interesting um during the famine some of the, the the um church leaders i suppose you know really said awful things and kind of further cemented the idea in the minds of the Protestants that superstitiousness was a catholic trait and suggested that God's wrath was being visited upon the superstitious masses. Hmm. Um, I mean, really helping to just drive a wedge between people. I mean, saying such awful things like that while people were were, were dying in such vast numbers. Hmm. And um, you know, effectively blaming having a fondness for folklore on their on their um, their horrible death. Um, yeah. It's um, I mean, there, there's, there's a number of these like, and it's just interesting to look at the angles that that you bring up in this question of stories of the past. Like you note the First World War as well, um, how how that there are more, uh, proportionally there are more Protestants that were sent to the front. Basically, that you're right. And um, by late 1915, there were about 53,000 Irish Protestants and 80,000 Irish Catholics fighting on the British side. And in 1917, when 150,000 were enlisted, 60,000 were Protestant and 90,000 were Catholics. These figures refer to the whole island and indicate that while Protestants represented about a quarter of the total population, they contributed about 40% of the soldiers. And um, But you noted then as well that there was a sense of kind of, of betrayal and poor treatment that, you know, some of them following their return from the front that many protestant young men and um, that they wouldn't stand up in church for god save the king when they came back that they felt they'd been treated badly by england when i was a boy they used to have a a, a parade on armistice uh, called armistice day in november yeah and uh roman catholics and everything but there were an awful lot of roman catholic soldiers and of course yeah all the all the 
back streets. Yeah. Uh, had Union Jacks out. Really? For VE Day. Yeah. That would be the, the local Catholic community. The Catholic community. Yeah. They'd all... Uh, Holman Street was a mass of Union Jacks. Because they'd all lost they'd men all the, had Lost sons and lost brothers. Sons and, yeah. Yeah. Because 1914-18, we were all one... And they didn't realise how bad it was going to be, did they? Cause, no. No. They were just sent out to be slaughtered. Yeah. It was, you know, it was the old ascendancy. Send them out. They didn't care. Didn't care. Yeah. They did. Uh, they felt they'd been abandoned by England and they increasingly also felt that they had been abandoned by the Irish Free State, mm. um, that they were being, you know, considered traitors when they thought they had, they had, I mean, the same as the Catholic soldiers, they had thought they were doing the right thing at the time. Mm. And then they, they, they felt embarrassed, ashamed, let down. Yeah. Mm. I mean, um, it, it did have its devastating effect on the, on, on many parts of the family because it's just, for, for most families or many families would have had someone who went off and died and, Mm. And then not being able to, um, or not really knowing how to memorialise them, because it became a bit yeah. awkward and embarrassing quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and not really being able to talk about it. And uh, you, yeah. you note in in the nineteen sixteen as well, like you talk about um, again this kind of ambivalence or the aftermath of nineteen sixteen. You're out of Barney, who I thought he just really interesting language that was used um, when he talks about his recent ancestors who were living in a, in a border area and how they reacted to 1916, the, the rising. And he says, there was nobody as close, that is the, the Protestant families or community. We had to pull together when you were in a strange land with a different religion. And he mentioned a, a strange land uh, several occasions. Yeah, yeah. Now it's striking that that's a border area because the experience of the border areas would be quite different than in other parts of Ireland. Yeah, yeah. That they... Um, their numbers were bigger for a start. Mm. Um, there were more problems proportionately, so it was easier for them to just kind of stick within their own group. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also much bigger kind of cohort of small farmers, working class Protestants. So majority of these people would not have been elite people or far mm. from us. Mm. You know, they wouldn't have been even shopkeepers. They would have been people, you know, working very hard for a very basic standard of living. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the border experience is, is definitely a, a particular one. I mean, they mm-hmm. would have been culturally much more aligned with people who ended up on the northern side of the border mm-hmm. uh, and um, would have had much more a sense of being abandoned in a strange land than, than people a bit further, further south, south who would have been much more integrated into their communities typically. Um, I want to play just a piece of audio here. This is from from the Urban Folklore Project. Nineteen. This was recorded in May nineteen eighty, and it's it's Seamus McPhillip talking to Louis Powderly, who's an inner city working class Dublin Protestant from a Protestant background. Seamus is kind of trying to ask him after he describes the looting and specifics of the day. He's like, "Well, you know, were you sorry to see the the British pull out of the south?" And he's 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 just he's basically kind of cagey about it. But I get a sense that there's more there. But he's kind of holding back to a certain extent that he, he doesn't quite. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he's just not entirely prepared to to express how he right. feels totally about it. Uh, do you, do you um you remember ninety the nineteen sixteen rising? Don't you? Oh, didn't I do? What did you think of that when it happened? Of course, you were a fairly. Mm, I I was sixteen at the time. What did you think of the rebels? Oh, well, I, I didn't think much of them because at the time 
the war was on and everybody was talking about the war and a lot of people saying it was a shame to start trouble here and the war on and all that. Were you sort of sorry to see the British pull out of the South in 1920? Of course I didn't, hadn't the experience. Yeah. But uh, there was a lot of people did uh, were very sorry to leave them, see them leaving. Yeah. Yeah. And you might have been yourself, well, you would have been a British soldier. So. Yeah, I was sorry to see them because uh, there's no use going over that sort of thing now. Mm. It's over and done with. You think it uh, might have been a better country if they'd stayed, maybe? No, I, I think it would be. Yeah. But see, now they've sold the country over to the... the magical at the... Common market. Uh, common market. Yeah. And you've got to do what they say. Mm. And your, your parents didn't want you to join the army, so did you run mm. away or something? Ah, no, they didn't. They didn't know you were joining? Oh, I just came home and said that. I joined the army and that was all right. And that too, when you joined, it was after the rising. So, like, yeah. uh, the Irish struggle was just beginning and so yeah. on. But yet, you didn't... You oh. hadn't been brought around to the rebel cause. Oh, right? no, because uh, all my family, they were all... Mm. We weren't mixed up in that sort of thing at all. Yeah. You never really sympathised with Republicans? Uh, oh, politics, did you? no. Uh, as a matter of fact, I yeah. I didn't take any interest in them because yeah. I was always brought up, always never to get into any yeah. trouble. There's another piece I want to play here. A fantastic uh, character, Lieutenant Colonel um, O'Connell Fitzsimons, Manners O'Connell Fitzsimons. Um, and he describes, um, his, he grew up in Glen Cullen, in County Dublin, and he described similarly um, the, 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 the rising, and from his house, he was sent with hay. Uh, he was told that the British horses in, in the RDS needed hay, and so he was sent off to, to, to um, wow. uh, through the city to send it, and he had a kind of a fantastic adventure with, with a, a mate of his, basically, as they saw it, um, but also expresses a kind of, I suppose, uh, he talks about the wicked stupidity of the English because of their the execution. So again, there's a kind of just an interesting crossover. I'll just play this piece now. Yeah. You weren't in, in Ireland when the 1916 Rising happened, were you? Oh, yes. Were you? Hmm. Um, I was going for a crammer's then in Dawson Street for the San Trust exam. It was great fun, that. The Rising? Yeah. That's what we thought. I mean, a young, youngster like myself. It was Easter Monday, wasn't it? Yes. I'd been out all day on a motorbicycle um, a, a trial run down to... We had lunch in, uh, with this group of motorists in uh, the meeting in the waters there. Arrived back home about four o'clock. <coughs> home was then Maureen. Cousin Tom rang up to say the party's off for tonight. There's trouble in the town. I don't know what it is. He said it's a shooting going on. You can hear it in the telephone, maybe, to my father. But it seems to be serious, more than a strike. So my father came, I was just finished dressing, and he said, you better not go in. So I had dinner at home, and afterwards, 
I got out of the motorbike and rode in to see what was to do. Uh, I went in by, uh, by Randler to Charlemont Bridge, but I was stopped by a British soldier who held up his hand and his rifle in the other, bayonet not fixed, which he should have been, and he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm coming to see what's to do. He said, you know. He said, no, I'm here to stop everybody going into the city. There's trouble in there. And I should have said, you're telling me, because it was noise, really. It was quite, quite loud then. Long bursts of fire. And so I went on up to the other one, uh, the uh, Charlemagne Bridge, the other one, uh, no, Portobello. The same thing happened, and I said, well, damn it, and I went and drove home. Then it was the following night that we walked up to the top of the hill, to the turret, as they called it, and could see the blaze. But the next day, we discussed this business for a long time, and while we were having a discussion after breakfast the next morning, Hugh Gillett, who lived next door in Clenard, came walking up the avenue and he said, he said oh, there you are, Manners. Manners is my name. Uh, there you are, Manners. Um, I've just been told that a fodder is needed for the uh, British horses that are being stabled in the RDS grounds. And my father said, who told you? And he mentioned the name of the man whose name I don't remember, but he lived in Kilgobbin. And I'm going to go in now and see if, what I can do about it. We haven't got enough. And he turned to my father, have you any hay you could spare? And the painter said, neither hay nor roads at all. So anyway, Hugh came back about half an hour afterwards, and he said, I got into the sidecar, and he said, we'll go out to, out through Blanchard, do, do you know the countryside? Um, Blanchard's town, Trenee, um, after Blanchard's, uh, Mulhuddard, Mulhuddard. I'm going out to Mulhuddard now, I believe, can't remember the name of the people that lived there, they were an old, old family. They migrated what was left of them to Australia, to New Zealand some years ago, uh, to see if they've got any hay. Uh, so off we started. We went into the RDS, uh, found a quartermaster fellow there, asked what was wanted, and he said, all we can get. They had been stationed there for over some considerable time, this, uh, the transport horses, and not uh, as cavalry. He says, we don't know how long we'll be here, so we'd better get all you can, at least order it. So, well, off we went from the RDS, um, around Pembroke Road, and heard a nasty piece of shooting going on. And Hugh, having more sense than I, I said, I'm going back, I'm not going to go up across there and down uh, Baggett Street, over the canal. He said, we'll go on round, we'll go round by... Um, what's the bridge above Kingsbridge? Um, it's a couple of miles up. 
it became increasingly common to to refer to them as English, which they did not appreciate. <laughs> it was considered, you know, considered a great insult really to be called English. Um, so yeah, they were increasingly being seen as representing England mm. as opposed to another type of Irish person, which is I think how the majority of them would have seen themselves, seen themselves. as being Irish, yeah. but a bit different. I remember, um, yeah, that, that yeah. It kind of ties in with the conversation that I mentioned to you briefly before, but I was chatting to somebody about this project, how it was, how it was ongoing. Um, and he described, he became quite irate. He described that same sense of his family having been um, living in, in a part of Wicklow for kind of hundreds of years, for a generation after generation, but still having this sense of not being fully accepted as, as Irish, by Catholics in particular, by his own kind of Catholic contemporaries or yeah. friends or whatever so i think that's a thing that that cuts quite deeply in a way but it's 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 a wound or it's the scar tissue isn't always seen you know what i mean it's it's not um again these things aren't necessarily not necessarily shown but and how did um how did people feel about the the, the treatment of the protestant community by the government was there a sense of discrimination or were people generally happy a sense of discrimination a resentment on the part of many of being forced to learn irish Really? A sense of living in a cold house as Protestant people, especially people that had relatives in the forces, like my own uncle, my mother's brother, and his son. They were both in the RAF. There was one account which I thought was quite... um kind of distressing in a way just to how the fault lines can, can run straight through a community. This is around the time of the Civil War. Uh, or the War of Independence and so on. Um, you write, my grandfather was a just. This is from uh, Hope, and and it's described yeah. here. My grandfather was a justice of the peace, and he'd been a hunting and shooting man and farmer. He was coming back across the fields, and he disturbed a group of the rebel army practicing or maneuvering or something. Later on, he was seen going into the army barracks in the town, and then a while later, a number of them were arrested, and it was presumed that he had reported on them. But my father and his brother certainly said no, that he didn't. My father was there the first time the IRA came out. My grandfather was told he must leave immediately. They were going to execute him. And one of the men apparently spoke up. And that upset my grandfather very much because when he spoke up, he realised that he knew who he was. Their faces were all blacked and I think that they were all masked. I've always just heard about their black faces. And they came right into the house and right into her bedroom and he was brought out and put up against the wall the kitchen wall of the house, apparently, and the children were all told to stay on the stairs in the centre of the house. Houses had been put on fire and they were afraid this might happen, and my father described it, that looking down from the window, once the man spoke up, they said, well, he could leave, but he had to leave immediately, and then they blackmailed the family. They had to leave money in a certain place down in the wood, and they got sort of orders to do this every so often, and they didn't have much money at the time. You're just thinking to yourself, what you know, even just the horror of kind of recognizing this voice of one of your neighbors from behind this mask who's standing in your kitchen with your bloody children holed up on, on, on the staircase yeah. and people in fear of their lives, you know? Yeah, and that's just I actually heard many, many variations on that story. These things happened a lot. Um, and 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 also, kind of afterwards, these, these people were still your neighbors, and you had to, I mean, yeah, you had to call, 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 call on doing the dressing with them and sharing a horse or, or doing the creamery run together because I mean, often, I mean. Until certainly the 1950s, 1970s, uh, um, rural work was you know, depended a lot on cooperation between neighbours, between farmers. Yeah. So, so you know, things settle down, and you'll be again, you know, so we do the creamery run together. So I'll be share hmm. a combine harvester, and and these, this this terrible thing would have happened between you. So, you know, that was 
uh, as trauma that took a long time to work out. And what a lot of people said was, um, when I was going around talking to people, was that this story had been in the family, but they only started talking about it in the last 10 to 15 years mm. when the last people who, who could remember it personally died. Yeah. Because it was just so hurt, so upsetting. Because <laughs> it was just... Well, there's so much pain there, and it's something that you see in yeah. tradition often that that these fault lines in in the kind of communal consciousness or memory that they like the civil war, uh, the famine, and so on that they don't enter into folk tradition. They don't appear on the surface until a generation or two kind of goes by, because like you yeah, said, they're just yeah. too painful to talk about. I can't imagine yeah. that. There's one one piece that I just thought was really metaphoric or symbolic of so much at a personal and communal level where you write, um, you note here a fellow Thomas, and Thomas is, it says here that Thomas's uncle during the War of Independence was in the forces against the insurgency, that is, against the rebels. Afterwards, he hid his ammunition by burying it underneath an apple tree. Gradually, the lead from the ammunition leached into the soil and killed the tree. Its steady decline was a constant reminder of the secret underneath it. The corresponding rifle stayed in the attic of the old family home until the 1990s. I just thought that was a kind of... There is a, a great, there's a beautiful or sad statement, I suppose, to that. It's, it's like the a kind of Jack and Barry novel or something. Yeah, it's, it's but yeah. it's it's like the, the, those secrets that we bury within ourselves that you know that on the surface of things the tree looks normal and and yet it's wilting and dying because this thing hasn't been extricated. There's something kind of buried within you know at an individual and a communal level. The secret hasn't been voiced or spoken, and so it's affecting things on the surface. You know, the tree is kind of withering and dying, but if you look at it, no one would know why. Um, and it, yeah. again, like what are, what are the, the secrets or stories or what are the aspects of our past or that, that the community and that the individual kind of denies and, and, and buries within themselves, whatever. Um, but yeah, there are many harrowing accounts in, in that sense. And I can't imagine, I suppose, the, the, like you said, the pain that has only been recently um, begun to be discussed. To move on to there's the next kind of section it's a really interesting chapter on stories of identity, uh, loyalty and, and culture. Um, I suppose as part of this, there's a sense of a kind of a, a lingering or a quiet affinity with, with, with Britain among many of the Protestant community, and particularly some of the older Protestant communities or the memories that you, that you were collecting. So how did Southern Protestants navigate their affinity with Britain while in Ireland? Well, in many cases, by rejecting it quite vociferously um, as time passed, so, so there's some stories um, about families being very pragmatic and there's one gentleman who said, well, as soon as Ireland became independent, we added, I don't remember if it was an O or a Mac, but we added, they gaelicised their name above the shop hmm. door. Hmm. Um, and other people, I mean, but some people actually remembered or, or had heard stories that their parents remembering more likely being going to gather together and said that this is the new situation, so we're all going to stop doing this and now we're going to start doing this other thing so people I mean one lady remembered um, and this would have been afterwards like some decades after independence but this kind of solemn moment when picture of Queen Alexandra was taken off the wall in the living room and the picture of the Fine Gael cabinet was put up instead yeah uh, yeah I remember or, that I, I laughed at that, that. <laughs> yeah yeah or um, you know kind of different symbols of of identity being removed and replaced with other more nationalist symbols my mother's family called me the Protestant Nationalist. Oh, why did they call you that? <laughs> oh, because I was so, I was more uh, anti-British. Yeah. I wouldn't say anti-British, but I, I was more nationalist. Yeah. In outlook. So that would have been the 50s, would it, when you... Uh, that was in the 40s. 40s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I grew up, I was born in 1930. Right. And um, I'm not sure why I, um, I always figured England were milking Ireland. There, there's, um, there's, uh, yeah, those interesting questions about, um, uh, like the portraits that are put up um, or days that are important. There's a piece here, you note, uh, Myrtle describing the visits to her, to the family farm every Sunday in the 1950s. And she says that at the time they were still clinging to their unionist ideals. She viewed the portraits of King George and Queen Mary on the living room wall as a testament to the family's ongoing loyalist sensibilities. And then another woman, Doris's father, continued to consider the English king as the bee's knees, that is to say he was a great chap altogether, throughout her childhood. Yeah. Remembrance Day was significant in her family and in her school, and she remembers listening to the Remembrance Day service and the king's speech in London on the wireless and having to stand for the British national anthem. Imagine that, she says today. Um, this topic of the king, there's another fantastic piece of audio. This is recorded by yourself and Chris. Uh, this woman is describing the first time she remembers crying. Uh, as, and she was six years old and it was when the king died and when she'd heard that, that the king has died uh, was dead basically she was became would they be in str- strongly unionist there uh, well my father well, I, I don't I never heard him talk much about but I think he would have uh, he'd been Fine Gael anyway yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. he certainly wouldn't be a Fianna Fáil Fianna Fáil he wouldn't be on the yeah, Republican yeah, side no. yeah and more, one of the well, most of the most of the um, Protestants were were unions, like I mean, the tra- traces of unions, unionism was there. Yeah, yeah like my dad, the, mm-hmm. my uncle that brought me up. Then, I mean, he was a fierce loyalist, and he was quite bigoted <coughs> against the Catholic faith. Maybe he was against the Protestant faith as well because um, circumstances and that. But he would have had. A cousin used to send him newspapers from England and he'd have them on the wall like plastic. He used it as wallpaper in the old kitchen. Yeah. You know, pictures of the Queen and the King and all the rest of it. And I know the first time I remember crying, come, I should come in here maybe. Of course you can. But the first time I remember crying was when I was at six when the King died and I heard it on the radio. And I went running up the road oh. to tell my dad that the King had died. I mean, the King had died. And that's the first time I ever remember crying. Was he upset as well? I don't know, but I was. I mean, the king, because it, it, they, they were just a magic people to me. But anyway, that, I shouldn't have put it in there. Sorry. I thought that was fantastic that that description you know, where she says, "Oh, they were just they were just a magic a magic people to me." You know, yeah. That, that yeah. question, uh, and yet. There was also a sense of having been deserted by, by Britain. You're right as well from one of the, the, the informants and the interviewees in the project. Uh, well, it says in my mother's passport, uh, these children are not British subjects. So we were aware from an early age that we were not British subjects. And I think my father was quite happy with that. What had the crown ever done for him? But I think he had a sense of exile, having been so close to the British time, having been born in the British time himself and grandfather having died for king and empire, and king and empire having then deserted them. So there's a, a kind of sense of a certain split in the community, in the minds of many around this this a sense of identity, but a sense of maybe being kind of deserted or then increasingly surrounded and kind of and under siege. And then you note that the generations of, of, of people who came after their parents, that they had quite a different perspective, that they didn't have the same 
Um, yeah. There's a sense of, you know, I question myself, like, this is another piece. What did England do for the Protestants or for the whole of Ireland? I don't think they were really interested in Ireland. Yet I question why. Why did the likes of my parents want to be looking to England? Because they were doing nothing for them. Most people in, an, in our inner city area were poor, whether you were Protestant or Roman Catholic. In fact, maybe in some cases the Roman Catholics could have been a lot better off. I think the Protestants at that stage looked to Britain, even though Britain didn't give a twopenny ticket about Ireland. So there's a sense of like, look, you've been abandoned, basically. These people don't care about you, and neither does the, 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 the free state doesn't care about you either. There's a sense of, um, I suppose, yeah, being uh, kind of being exiled in that way. Yeah, I think that was particularly strong maybe among inner city Protestants who really, you know, they did genuinely have a hard time. They had no resources to fall back on, like wealthy Protestants. They hmm. they were poor. They, really, for a lot of them, all they had was a strong sense of identity. So I think they were the, probably the most likely to cling to this, this sense of Britishness long after other people had kind of given up on it. Hmm. Um, because, you know, they didn't really have very much in terms of material resources mm -hmm. so i mean it's obtaining some sort of a sense of identity or pride from a, a counter identity maybe was a source of yeah. personal yeah. strength for that particular group i think it was much easier for maybe more moneyed protestants or for people with land to, to get identity from their mm. their business enterprise or from from being farmers or whatever mm -hmm. but, but i think i really think that the the, the most some of the most interesting stories you hear are from uh, inner city Protestants in Dublin, they, they're a fascinating mm. group and, and, and you know, they haven't had a very easy time. Mm. They were also quite substantially abandoned by more affluent Protestants who, who just didn't really want anything to do with to them. To do them either. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I thought it was interesting, one of the, one of the, um, the kind of signifiers that were, went totally over my head, I don't know if it's still around today at all, was the presence of a little statue, statuettes of white horses in inner city flats and which, which, signified the house as a protestant house because it's in commemoration to to king billy and and the battle of the boyne yeah but apparently you know most people didn't know that it was like kind of an in yeah yeah in i thought that was amazing message yeah yeah I, I wasn't aware of it either um and i actually have seen a couple i think on dorset street and i thought oh i wonder if that's what that is yeah yeah it yeah could just be a horse yeah um, there's another question I suppose that you raised which I thought was fascinating and it's the idea you, you touched on it earlier already and the idea of Protestants and the rejection of folk tradition or the rejection of tradition um, and I suppose you give a couple of examples that for some Protestants Gaelic culture and tradition were to be avoided I thought this is hilarious there's a quote from the, the, the provost of Trinity College which is then associated heavily obviously <laughs> with the Anglo-Irish gentry he stated that old Irish literature was degenerate and filthy and that Irish folklore was at bottom <laughs> abominable it's kind of tell me what you really think i thought that was a fantastic um <laughs> quote so he's obviously having none of it and there's a sense that you note about you know fairy stories and things were not allowed in our house my father was my, my mother sorry was very particular about nonsense is one of the quotes some people looked on tradition as pagan customs handed down by the druids and they didn't want anything to do with any sort of superstition and so on so I thought that was really interesting. I laughed as well about, you know, this woman, uh, Hope, I think, is describing how traditional music really wasn't wasn't allowed in the radio. And they'd say, turn off that old jiggity jog, that kind of nonsense. So there's nonsense and 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 kind of um, superstitions are kind of to be avoided. And yet, again, when you go beneath the surface, there's a kind of attention to that, like that actually there were beliefs in, in the Banshee or in traditional forms of healing and oh, so on. Really? So how, do, how does that manifest itself? That's, that, that was actually the, one of the most interesting things that these people, not everyone, but some people would, would make these quite strong statements that, well, uh, step back a little bit. Folklore was used by people like de Valera as a tool in nation building. And so it was kind of used in a way that promoted 
the idea that, that Gaelic culture and Gaelic folklore was kind of the true Ireland and that everyone should aspire to. So anyone who didn't like de Valera or his political kind of stance might be inclined to feel a bit hostile towards it because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. But these kind of actual fairly explicit expressions of hostility have the flimsiest to no relationship at all with people's actual behaviours. <laughs> so that's so if you were to just ask, oh, is there any folklore tradition in this family, people go, oh, no, no, not at all. But if you say something else, if you say, well, would your would your parents, your grandparents have had any belief in the in fancy? Would they have gone to the Holy Well? Would they have done this? Would they have done that? Hmm. Oh, yes, yes, of yeah, course. Yeah. They would have done that. I know my father had the cure of the sprain. And it was a cure that was handed down in the family from, say, from male to female and from female to male. It was a Protestant man that first gave it to his mother, my grandmother, when she was a little girl. He was brought to the farm to make the cure of the sprain for a cow that had hurt her foot. And he made it and he said, he had to come a long journey and he said, well, he said, I give it now, he said, to the little girl and she can cure. So he did, and it has something to do with the placing, the proper placing of your hands on the joint that's injured. I'm saying some prayers. Any prayers, I think. My father would say in Our Father and Hail Mary, but possibly there is maybe a special prayer to be said. Um, that You mentioned Holy Wells. I thought there was a brilliant entry in the book on, on Holy Wells, uh, Doris, and you write that Doris and her husband were invited to an event at a local Holy Well. Although this was unprotestant, they went and it was grand. They said that they prayed with the rest of them and all. It seems that there was a certain amount of thrill in transgressing a social norm. Many Protestants seem to feel or have felt that attending rites at Holy Wells is not suitable for them. But this is one of the most persistent aspects of folk religion in Ireland, and often the rites and rituals have the flimsiest of relationships with official Catholic doctrine. For rural people, activities involving a local holy well can mean many things. They have an important religious element, often with roots in pre-Christian tradition, but they are also territorial rites associated with place, community and belonging. Moreover, the meaning of a sacred space in the landscape can change and shift, or can be different to different people. By participating in rites rooted in the local landscape, even if they are usually associated with the other sort, one can convey the message that we belong here too. I thought that was really interesting, the idea that, you know, even the, the pre-Christian sense of some of these uh, the holy wells and celebrations that like you say have no bearing off into the former Catholic Church or are actively looked down on by the Church that if you kind of scrape beneath the layers of Christian inheritance down you know we can maybe reconnect with other modes of expression which go beyond Christian sectarianism say but there's I, I just thought that was interesting it kind of made me smile the sense of this you know the transgressive quality of visiting a holy well which I just never experienced I'd never thought of before um, you mentioned some calendar customs as well and uh, and some which I wasn't familiar with at all what what was beating the bounds? Beating the bounds was um, you you would go around the, the parish boundary and I think originally you would kind of hit it with a child like you would kind of pick up <laughs> pick up a little boy and kind of pat him along the boundary but, but or later on they would use sticks hmm. it was um, you know, another territorial right really just marking out the the community boundaries. Right, okay. This is our land, essentially. Yeah, that we belong here. And, <laughs> and you know, kind of keeping it safe for the next year. And um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you mentioned other aspects of, of, which I thought was interesting, you know, visual symbols. 
you know, like wearing the poppy and that in the absence of the visual iconography, which is central to a Catholic home, um, that in, in some places there was signs of kind of, of cultural pride among Protestants um, where they they wear the poppy and sometimes in their in their breast pocket they put a razor there so that if anyone tried to snatch the poppy off them in the street that their fingers would be cut by this razor blade. Now this may well be an apocryphal story, yeah, yeah, but, no um, but it certainly is a story that was told, yeah. Um, so I suppose how is that the, there there's certain questions of cultural pride among Protestants as well, like that they were maybe more free thinking or hard workers or or trusted or had a sense of civic responsibility and and thriftiness and so on, and that was often told by by Catholics as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, they're very clean. Um, they're very um, yeah. So some of, some of them read about quite different things. Like people say they they um, they they know more about. Free things. They know how to make nettle soup. They know how to make jelly out of rose hips, and they would be more. Food. It comes up quite a lot that people would say they're very good at um, you know, making a meal out of nothing. That they're very good at at, at um, foraging in the hedgerows. Hmm. That they. You know, I mean, lots of little things that people would mention as as um, sources of cultural pride. And food would definitely come up quite a lot. I thought it was interesting the sense of being kind of free thinkers and some of them feeling that their Catholic neighbours were kind of, you know, under the thumb or duped by the church. And yet there's a certain contradiction maybe in, in some sense in that, you know, there was the experience of nay temery and the, the idea of the Protestant yeah. population being declined by, by uh, mixed marriages and the huge strain that put on families. And then the pressure that was put on certain Protestant individuals not to engage in mixed marriages and to maintain a kind of in-group cohesion where on the one hand there's a sense of yes we are free thinkers and, and not slaves tradition and and yet there were many then there was a sense of um, a kind of sorrow at, at maybe missed opportunities in life and, and people who never got to marry and so on because of those pressures yeah. that were applied to them yeah what was um, what was Nate Temeray or what was the the Temeray was a rule passed in 1908 that said that if um, if a Catholic person married someone who wasn't Catholic they had to bring the children up as Catholics. So this particular law, this, the Irish state really got behind it shortly afterwards in in in, um, in early independence. And so this rule, which obviously applied, it was a, a Vatican ruling, so it obviously applied everywhere among Catholics, but it was applied with credible ferocity in Ireland. Mm. Um, and even kind of got mixed up sometimes in actual kind of civil legal cases and stuff where the state would roll in behind it. So people were extremely anxious about that, for mm. sure. And and then really did not react very pragmatically. They really tended to react, you know, very strongly, mm. counter-react against it, you know. And, and, and it was a big factor in influencing Protestants to really turn inward mm. and to be kind of agents of their own marginalisation in some cases. So that... A lot of the sense of marginalisation that small Protestant communities would express, I mean, partly it came from the situation that they were in as a minority, but it also came from their own kind of collective decision to turn their backs around and kind of circle the wagons a bit. And a lot of that was around marriage, these laws to do with marriage. And were there many Protestants around that area near... Well, now, where I'm living at the moment, there was no-one else years ago was let into those buildings, only Protestants. Now, we've only one Protestant out of that generation here. Yeah. And was there any antagonism towards them? Oh, no. Ah, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, because when I was a young one, there was a, 
I lived in Francis Street where O'Hara is now. Mm-hmm. There's a row of cottages there where the Cardigate is. Mm-hmm. And we lived down there and then we moved up to the drawing room over O'Hara's. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, it was a double hall, six and seven. And there was mm-hmm. a little shop between. Now O'Hara's has the whole lot now. And uh, there was um, a family the name of Proctor. Yeah. Lived in what we call a parlour, but it was a shop. But they used to come into the yard and go round by the back. Mm-hmm. And um, that young one, I brought her into the church several times. Mm-hmm. They were rank Protestants. Yeah. And I brought them into the church several times. Yeah. And she loved it. Mm-hmm. I suppose I wouldn't know the young one now. Mm-hmm. But all my people were Protestants. Mm-hmm. And my mother converted them. And his mother and father, my father, my grandmother and my grandfather died rank Protestants. But they never, uh, they ignored my mother. Mm -hmm. Now the grandfather didn't, but the grandmother. Mm -hmm. She always addressed the others as Kate Jackson and all to this, you know. Mm -hmm. Jackson was her name before we were married, before I was married. But she'd always call me mother Mary Mooney by her maiden name. Over that... There was one aspect, a certain kind of sadness I thought, and you noted in the introduction to the book that kind of as the calendar observances become less important, you know, in an age of increased homogenization, globalization, secularism, that as these defining characteristics kind of fade away, that they can begin to be they can begin to be discussed in a sense, you know, like you kind of in concluding the book, you know, at the end, Protestant cultural integration is is increasingly the status quo. For older yeah. people who can remember when life as an indigenous minority in Ireland was much more complicated than it is today, this reality can give rise to a complex blend of shame and pride. Shame in having failed to assert a sense of cultural difference that is valued, and pride in making the pragmatic decision to relinquish many of the behaviours, traditions and even shared memories that once made them unique for the sake of harmony and integration. However, for Protestants, Ireland's tendency towards secularism impacts on their cultural identity in a particular way. The Protestant who drifts away from their religious identity also drifts away from their community's traditions and shared memories. It is hard to avoid the conclusion that the story of the Protestants of independent Ireland as a cultural, if not religious, minority is drawing to a close. In light of this, hearing the stories of those who still remember a time of marked cultural distinctiveness is important. I thought it was a fantastic way to um, to, to close the, 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 the book. Uh, it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating study um, of the Protestants of independent Ireland and yeah, I'd urge everyone listening, be you Protestant, Catholic or dissenter or indeed unreconstructed heathen or otherwise to yeah get a copy of the book. And like you say, there's just to learn more of the nuances and subtleties and complexities of Irish identity and, and history. Um, and is there anywhere, where can people find you to get, get copies of the book? Well, they can get it in all good bookshops mm-hmm. in Ireland anyway. And they can get it from the um, publisher, Eastwood Books. Eastwood Books. And, yeah. I'll put a link up in the SoundCloud page for this yeah. as well. And um, it's on you know Amazon and and places like that as well. But um, any of the major bookshops in Ireland stock it. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, yeah, it's really fascinating, and I'm really glad to have been able just to discuss this this. I suppose the just the, the project, the the findings, um, what it suggests. And also then, I suppose, let listeners know that all of this material that, that Deirdre just collected is now happily is going to be bound into the, the manuscript collections of the main, the, the manuscript collections of the National Folklore Collection and is there as a kind of, for posterity as, as a record. So it's a fantastic oh, addition. that's the last thing I'd like to say. I'd like to say thank you to the National Folklore Collection because they, they were so supportive and all the help I got. 
And and oh, actually, no, sorry, sorry, the third final thing I want to say was <laughs> the people were so excited. The people who took part yeah, in, yeah. This, in this project were so excited and so happy and so proud and thrilled to be to be in the National Folklore Collection. Yeah, to be heard. And Samuel, the person, the gentleman you were discussing early on, you know, I think for him, knowing that his memories were going to be the National Folklore Collection kind of fixed this problem of him not having been yes. considered back yeah. in school selection back in 1937 when he was nine years old. Yeah, it took a while, so, but he got there, didn't he? It took a while, but he got <laughs> that there. That is crazy. He's in the main collection, not the school's collection. That's actually, he must be the only individual maybe who that's happened. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, um, a fitting place to end would be with a thanks to the Protestant community of Ireland. Um, yeah. But yeah, thank you so much, Deirdre, for joining us and I hope everyone out there is taking care and uh, yeah, we'll see you all again. So take care and slán. Thank you.